Hello, and we're in the middle of a war. It's time to pick a side. Welcome to Best of the Rest, the show where we take a second look at movies that were poorly received upon release and challenge ourselves to only talk about the things we like and what the movie does well. This week, we are talking the 2004 film Alien vs. Predator. My name is Chris Logan, and I am joined, as always, by the adolescent alien hunter, Andrew Williams. You ready for this one, Andrew? Yeah, I, uh, I'm ready to go. It's been a while since I've jumped back and watched this one. Um, it was a bit of a staple at my house growing up, oddly, but I'm ready to dive into it. <laughs> the collection of movies that like hits with your family and parents is quite eclectic. Yes, um, it is. It is indeed. I had actually never seen this movie before. Like I've been saying on uh, throughout this month on our Alien and Predator month leading up to this film, this was my first time sitting down and watching this beginning to end. I had seen scenes. I had seen parts of it. I actually watched a, a chunk of it with mutual friend Doug. And we, we, at the time, you know, it was before the hashtag positivity podcast. We weren't watching it to find the positives. A bit of the opposite, so I'll save most of the thoughts we had at that time. But like I said, first time watching it, beginning to end, all I knew was the reception of the film, uh, which isn't great. It's why we're covering it. And I gotta say, a little little preview of things to come, I was pleasantly surprised with the movie that I got. I agree. I think uh, I think this one maybe a little overlooked. You know what? You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it's on par with like the pinnacles of the franchises, but I think there's uh I think as at, at bare minimum as delivering on its concept, I think it does I think it does a pretty good job with that. I agree one hundred percent. It just seems you know, this is the most appropriate way to end Alien Predator Month, the two franchises coming together. There is a sequel to this movie. We're not covering it this month. Maybe we'll circle around to it one day. I have obviously not sat down and watched that second movie, but I did notice researching this one that the the title of the second one is Aliens versus Predator, which I think is a fun little nod to the Alien franchise. As in, indeed it is. We actually had this first movie on our list of potential episodes for a very long time. This podcast used to focus exclusively on movies based on comic books, which this one kind of is. Uh, The Alien vs. Predator franchise started with a comic published way back in 1989. And even though this isn't an exact story uh, from that comic book, like I said, that was the birth of the idea. So it qualified for our show well before we started mixing up the genres from month to month. But look, we're finally covering it. It's finally here. Let's jump into it. Alien vs. Predator, released August 13th, 2004, made on a budget of $60 million. At the box office, it brings in $177 million. Pretty good return. However, critically, not well received at all. It holds just a 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. Audience score, a little bit higher, but still pretty low, just 39%. And that's what you normally see. We've had a few episodes this month yeah. where we were shocked that the audience was equal to critics or below critics. Is that so out of the out of the norm? But this is what you're looking at. A little bit higher from audiences, but in the case of this movie, it's still not a great reception by fans. 
Uh, no, um, it is not. Like I said, you do have the box office there. Like we said, this does get a sequel. Um, so obviously there was enough interest and enough financial return that they saw it worthwhile to have a sequel. And this movie obviously set that up. But uh, yeah, needless to say, um, I mean, I mentioned it. I think it's a little overlooked. But generally speaking, I think most people look at this uh, similar to how you and mutual friend Doug may have looked upon it once upon a time. Where <laughs> yeah. it's mostly that thing you kind of watch to uh, maybe maybe have a little fun with, um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to watch it because I definitely don't think the film like seeing a twenty one percent. I think the film is much above that. Um, like just not not even trying yeah. to like dive into like what's good, what's bad. Um, a twenty one percent makes me think that I'm in for like a little bit of a rough time. Um, and this is yeah. this is really not this is this breezes along uh pretty quickly generally speaking i actually like our, our runtime here is 101 minutes so it's another one that's like knows what it's doing gets to the point gets going and pretty much hits the gas and just goes to the end um so it's a lean movie that like i said i i think it does a pretty good job of delivering on its base concept yeah, I agree. Whenever I see a, a critic score down in the low 20s or below the 20s, at that point, I'm almost expecting the movie to barely function narratively and to have plot holes and, and leaps in logic. And even though this is an absurd movie, you can follow the story from point A to point B very easily. I think it functions, like I said, it really delivers on the promise. The movie is written and directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. An alum of the show, we talked extensively about this director back on our Mortal Kombat episode, where we, we made the observation that none of the movies in his filmography are certified fresh, which is just, it's just something. It's just interesting, Andrew. But I gotta say, this, one of his best movies, in my opinion. I mean, I think I still put Mortal Kombat at the top, but this is maybe two or three. I haven't rewatched uh, Event, Hor- Event Horizon in a while. I think that one's maybe up there too, but solid effort and impressive that he was the writer and director on this. He's not always in the writer's chair. He is not. So it's interesting, and it's interesting to see when he does uh, jump into the writer's chair. The Resident Evil movies are another one where I think he's got uh, writing credits, I think, on most of those. Um, but this is one where he's stepping into the writer and director's chair the first time. Uh, well, he'd just done it for Resident Evil before this, but it's only the second time he's kind of doing that on a big blockbuster film. But um, Resident Evil obviously birthed the whole franchise, so I guess he was uh, uh, sitting in some goodwill with studios at that point. They were willing to give him the shot. And like you said, I think this is definitely in the uh, the upper reaches of his filmography. And that's not meant to be like backhanded. That's not meant to be like, well, yeah. they're all bad, and this is the least bad. That's more of just, you know, Mortal Kombat is a very entertaining movie, and I think this is, I, I don't think there'd be a huge issue putting this behind it. One similarity this movie does have with Mortal Kombat is some of the criticism, especially from fans, is that it is PG-13. Of course, with the Mortal Kombat franchises and how gory the games are, there was a minor backlash, because this is way before the internet was what it was today, but a minor backlash about that movie being PG-13 and not being able to show all of the violence and gore. Alien vs. Predator, every single Alien or Predator movie before this was rated R. Now the franchise has come together and it's PG-13. Obviously a business decision. The studio wants to get as much as they can from the box office to not alienate potential fans of this franchise. And it's monsters fighting each other. You're going to pull in that teenage demographic. 
I'm not saying that's good or bad. Uh, there was certainly an era where Hollywood got really scared of making rated R movies. So the the plan is to release a PG-13 in theaters, get as much box office as possible, and then release two versions on home video with the PG-13 cut and the unrated cut. And you're kind of double dipping on fans. I mean, a lot of gross stuff there. Don't get me wrong. But the movie itself, I, I don't think being PG-13 hurts it too much I, I think i can understand people being weary before they see the movie but if you actually watch it you're not missing out on too much in in my opinion i this may be a bit of a hot take but i'm gonna i'm gonna throw this out there every movie that quote unquote should have been rated r that is only rated pg-13 is not bad because it's rated pg-13 generally speaking i think those movies have a lot of other failures that have very little to do with the rating. And that was, like you said, though, there was a period of time where, like you said, st- Hollywood got really scared about R-rated blockbuster films, specifically, like big budget R-rated film. Um, you would still get plenty of R-rated films, but you tended to find that those budgets were much lower or it was like a proven quantity of some kind, like a Quentin Tarantino or somebody that was a proven asset to get a huge box office for, not a huge box office, but a, a return on investment for R-ratings. So when it started getting into to blockbusters and things like that, there was this hesitation to be R-rated. Um, because, like you said, they felt that it limited the scope of potential viewers, and they didn't want to hurt the box office. And then these, by and large, these movies come out, the box office is still not amazing, um, but by and large, I think the flaws in the films end up being much simpler than there wasn't enough violence or gore. Um, I tend to think you're looking at a situation where the the failings are in multiple places, and it rarely, for me, is something as simple as, yeah, this would have been night and day if it had been rated R instead. Andrew. Yeah. I agree. Excellent. (laughs) Moving (laughs) on. All right. Let's jump into this PG-13 film, (laughs) Alien vs. Predator. In the year 2004, a Wayland Corporation satellite discovers an ancient pyramid buried deep beneath the surface of Antarctica. Charles Wayland recruits a team of experts in various fields to explore the structure and soon discover they are not alone. After a xenomorph queen is awakened and several members of the expedition become host to its offspring, the surviving humans find themselves caught in a battle between the xenomorphs and the predators the alien race responsible for building the structure as a ceremonial hunting ground thousands of years ago. As the number of survivors dwindles, the ice-climbing expert Alexa Woods aligns herself with the last living predator and becomes an honorary warrior in the process. After reaching the surface, the pair face off against one last threat, the xenomorph queen. Battle with the Queen, Andrew, in Antarctica. This movie goes places, you know? It does. I think it makes for some uh, some interesting visuals here. But, yeah. You know what's a little bit surprising? Uh, you mentioned this movie but taking place in Antarctica. Like, it's a, it's a Predator movie. It takes place in Antarctica. But the snow and cold never are used as a plot point to hide from the Predator. There's a moment where you think it might be. Um, and then it's not. Um, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. Like you get a few cool visuals where the snow is kind of hitting 
the invisible predators, but by and large, we're down under the surface. So the cold ends up not being a huge factor, which maybe that's a wasted opportunity, but you know. Maybe I mean I'm not I'm not complaining. Just an interesting observation. Yeah. We've we've seen so many different ways to hide from predators. At some point it's gotta be like, are these guys Apex predators? If it's that easy to hide from them, so I'm okay with them not. <laughs> not predators have never run into mud their whole lives. Um. <laughs> what is this? Well, Andrew, let's jump into it, starting with the cast, specifically with the best casting and best performance of the film. Every episode, we recognize one person who goes above and beyond the Call of Duty with their performance that they actually elevate the quality of the entire movie. We recognize that person by giving them the Mark Strong Award. Andrew, kick us off. Who gets your Mark Strong Award for Alien vs. Predator? I uh, There's a few people in this movie that are doing stuff that I really like. Um... But I'm going to go with what amounts to essentially our lead. I'm going to give a Mark Strong to Sanaa Lathan, uh, who plays our main character, Lex Woods, who's kind of the uh, Arctic explorer slash guide that is hired to basically successfully get our crew from the ship to this pyramid that they have found underground and get them back safely, uh, naturally. Things do not go as planned, as they rarely tend to. Um, but I think she does a great job here. She's she's the one along the whole way that kind of has that that Ripley role of, well, this is a terrible idea. Why are you guys doing this? And then they do it anyway. And of course, it all goes wrong. And it's just her repeatedly being like, this is a bad idea. I don't think you should do this. And then they do yeah. it and something bad happens. Um, very similar to what Ripley does in the first Alien. Um, but I think she does a great job. Um, she's got a good rapport with the rest of the cast, especially with uh, uh, Lance Henriksen, who I'm sure we'll be talking about in a little bit. But And then, of course, right at the end of this film, she gets to get full in on the action, has a big part to play in fighting the aliens and getting rid of the aliens and dealing with all of that. I think that's awesome. Um, to have kind of a an awesome female protagonist getting to jump right into the thick of such a uh, big, high-profile uh, crossover battle. So yeah, starting at the top. I agree, Andrew. Also getting my Mark Strong Award, and I'm glad you went first because I would have said her name incorrectly. <laughs> Thanks for pronouncing it, I assume, the right way. Sanaa Lathan, is that what you said? Sanaa. Sanaa. Sanaa Lathan. I have a friend with the same name, so it's easier. <laughs> Perfect. Now, I know her from Blade before this. I was trying to yep. place her the whole time I was watching this. Like, where do I know her? And I had to, like, look up her filmography. So, obviously, a very prominent role in the first Blade movie. Also, the film Life with Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence, a, a movie that, for some reason, I've seen a million times. It was on cable a ton back in the day, <laughs> so I've seen that a lot. But a uh, very accomplished actress. And, man, this line from her wiki really caught my attention and gave me a chuckle. Now. Alien vs. Predator, I already mentioned, I like this movie. We're going to talk about a lot of the high points, but at the end of the day, it is a alien fight an alien movie. It is yeah. summer, blockbuster, popcorn, whatever you want to call it. It is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. I, f- I find it humorous that in 2004, Lathan's performance in the Broadway revival of A Raisin in the Sun earned her a nomination at the Tony Awards for Best Featured Actress in a Play. <laughs> The fact that the same year this movie comes out, she's in a very <laughs> prestigious Broadway play and gets nominated for a Tony Award is 
very funny to me. But it just, you know, a testament to her range, obviously. And I agree. It's not... uh, She is the lead of this movie. She gets the most to do and the the biggest arc. But she really is doing a very good job in elevating the film, what she's given, and all the things that come along with the Mark Strong Award. And I got to say, I'm going to be very, uh, very honest with you, Andrew, and a little bit vulnerable on the podcast by admitting this. But early in this movie... We're getting introduced to the team. And, and a part of me, I mean, look, hashtag positivity podcast, I'm looking for the positives, but a part of me is like, oh, this is going to be one of those movies where it's just they cast a bunch of beautiful people and they give them all these various diverse roles and say, deal with it, rather than casting specific to the character itself. Do you, do you know where I'm coming from when I when I say that, Andrew? Do you know have you seen movies like that? Do you get that feeling sometimes? Yeah, no, I I, I smell what you're stepping in. Don't worry. Okay, all right. So uh, that was kind of my first impression when I see her get introduced. I mean, yeah, she's pretty a bunch of pretty people, but I I, f- I felt like people were getting cast for the wrong reasons. I guess is is what I'm trying to say here. And I gotta admit, here on the podcast. I was dead wrong. She does a great job. She is believable in her expertise and her capabilities, and she totally won me over, and I felt a little bit bad for having that impression early on in the movie, but hey, Mark Strong Award, very well deserved. But Andrew, let's move through the rest of this cast. Lance Henriksen is back as Charles oh, Bishop Wayland. Now, you teased this return to the franchise a bit uh, to me earlier in this month as we made our way through these movies. I had no idea he was in this movie, uh, you know, until you told me, but I didn't know in what role. And I was a little surprised the opening, like, credit to this movie tell us it takes place in 2004. I, I assumed, you know, with these franchises, it would have been way into the future, but it is, you know, quote, modern day when the movie comes out. And he's clearly playing a human, and uh, I guess the founder of the Wayland Corporation, and confirming that the Bishop model of Android is based on his appearance, and confirming that an Alien 3, which took place in 2179, is an Android, and it's lying to Ripley, which is what I suspected from the beginning, but this kind of takes out the ambiguity from that. But uh, a cool move to bring Lance Henriksen back, in my opinion. I agree. Apparently he was the first one cast. Um, That was supposedly a big thing they were really looking to do was make sure that they established some sense or some link between uh, the franchises. Uh, It is interesting to note that in this movie, it is simply the Wayland Corporation. It is not the Wayland-Yutani Corporation. Um, So in this, we are seeing a precursor. Now, what this does establish is that there are two concurrent alien timelines, essentially, because the uh, prequel films by Ridley Scott established that Guy Pierce's Peter Wayland is the founder of the Wayland Corporation. So we've got two, or, you know, I'm sure there's somebody out there that can rationalize away how that does yes. conflict. Yeah. But, um, but before, obviously, Ridley Scott dove in and did that, we had Lance Henriksen coming back as Charles Bishop Wayland. And I think it's a cool little link. Um, they do some interesting things with the character. Obviously, he is revealed to have some kind of illness, a, a t- form of cancer, I believe it's implied. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more with the scenes. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's Lance Hendrickson. I mean, I yeah, I couldn't I couldn't help dropping the teases when you were like, yes, this is the end of Lance Hendrickson. And I was like, or is it? 
Um, but he's great. And like I said, I, I like that at bare minimum, there was a desire to establish that link. Um, and I'm never sad to see Lance Henriksen on my screen. Yeah, great performance. And similar to Aliens, I don't know if you got this impression or it was just me, but like I was expecting him to be a villain. I was expecting a turn, him to like betray the crew in some way or like, oh, this is a twist. I actually knew what we were doing here. You're just fodder, running, something like that. But he, that turn never happens. He dies a hero in this movie. And Maybe it's because he just he kind of looks like a movie villain, especially with those deep <laughs> lines he has in his face. A very unique look. But as we talked about, they played that up in Aliens where he's he's the android in that franchise. You expect them to be a villain at that point. And I think they kind of used that casting to to to, to make you feel that way. And it, it works again here. I was expecting him to be bad, but turn never came. But a great performance from Lance Hendrickson. Love it. He definitely has some moments where you're you're definitely led a little astray, where like he definitely is doing things against uh, Lex's advice. He's doing things like that, and he kind of establishes that. But by and large, it's it's not malicious in most of what he's doing. Um, and then, like you said, ultimately he does kind of get the hero's death. So, um, yeah, great stuff. Raúl Bova plays Sebastian De Rosa. Another person I see introduced, I'm like, oh, okay, this is beautiful people <laughs> all over the place. But he is really uh, Alexa's right-hand man on the expedition for most of this movie until, of course, he dies. But uh, one thing, I guess this is a good time to shout this out, is I really appreciate the diversity of this cast. Like, of course, on a base level, it's cool for a big budget to have a diverse cast. But from a storyline perspective, if Wayland is assembling the top experts from the globe. It makes sense for them to be from all over the globe and be diverse. And it shows in the casting. I mean, we've got a, a lot of races and nationalities represented here in these experts of the world. So big kudos to Paul W.S. Anderson and the casting director for making that happen. I think it just it makes the movie better. But role specifically, uh Great, he's he's uh, what would you call it? Archaeologist is that is that yeah. what he is? He studies ancient yeah, cultures, yeah. and um, believable in that expertise, and uh, believable with that gorgeous accent. Uh, looking through his yes. filmography, he's got tons of American movies, French films, and Italian films in his repertoire, which is super impressive. Dude can just travel the globe and be a star anywhere. It's it's very cool. Yeah, and he's from Italy, so he's he's Italian by birth. Um, but like you said, it's it's an interesting uh, and logical uh, place to take the cast for this film to have them be uh, international, for 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 lack of a better word. And um, he does a great job here. Like I said, he's they they meet on the the group, but they end up kind of bonded together through the events uh, that happen. He does a great job. Ewan Brimmer plays Graham Miller. And boy, if you don't recognize the name Ewan Brimmer, you would recognize his face. Do a quick Google. You've yeah. seen him on stuff before. Very distinct looking human being. Alum of the show, actually. I didn't realize he was in Judge Dredd. He played Junior Angel, which is, is very indeed. fun. The year after that had one of his most iconic roles as Spud in Train Spotting. If you've seen Train Spotting before, it's a movie you'll never forget. And he has plenty of. 
memorable stuff to do in that movie. Also a prominent role in the movie Matchpoint, which is a great movie. I recommend that one a lot because it's something that not a lot of people have seen, but Scarlett Johansson, Ewan Bremer, there's a lot of stars in there and a fantastic, fantastic script and film. Uh, just don't look at who directed it. <laughs> just watch the movie and enjoy it for what it is. Uh, I, I, I really enjoy just it. Cover but your Ewan... eyes during the <laughs> intro credits. Um... Yes. Uh, but Ewan, I think he's fantastic. Like I said, distinct, memorable. I, I love him here. His his final scene, his death scene is very good and one of my favorites in the movie. We'll talk about it in a minute. But uh, again, just love that casting. Yeah, I mean, and he's even more recently, he was in the first Wonder Woman. He was in cow he's all over television he's on our flag means death a new hbo show by our boy taika watiti um so he's all over the place but yeah you've absolutely seen his face he's been in all sorts of things pearl harbor black hawk down the rundown snatch he's he's everywhere um but yeah he's got an interesting role here bit of a bittersweet uh role here because he's documenting this whole trip uh for his boys back home um, and when bad things start to happen to him, you, uh, you understand the implications of what that means. And that is, uh, you know, Chris, that's sad. Um, it's a bummer, dude. That is, is a bummer. And it's, but it's also part of what I like that the movie does that not everybody gets this level of attention, but there is a bit, everybody, most of our main players all get some kind of layers added to them. Uh, to make them a little bit more than just fodder. There are plenty of characters in this movie that are just fodder. I'm not going to pretend that there's not. When you've got a movie like this, you got to have that happen. But uh, he's one of the guys that gets a little bit more attention, and he runs with it. And I think he does a great job. Colin Salmon plays Maxwell Stafford. Man, does this guy have a cool voice <laughs> or what? He does. He is Wayland's right-hand man. He's responsible for recruiting these experts, and... You've got him introducing a lot of people in the beginning of this movie. You get to hear that cool, unique voice and delivery. Uh, I've got to imagine Paul W.S. Anderson is responsible for bringing him back, as he also had a prominent role in Resident Evil. Also, funny enough, in that movie Matchpoint, I was just gushing about, and an alum of the show because he was in Punisher Warzone. So we've talked about him before. We loved him then. We love him now. Colin Salmon, always a memorable performance. Yeah, like you said, he gets uh he's kind of the uh the kind of organizer for Wayland. He picks all of his people and this guy goes around and gets them. He does a has a, a has a moment where you know our our lead character Lex is climbing an ice wall and she's, you know, he asks he's like we need you tomorrow and she's like that's going to be a problem and she gets to the top and he's already there. Cuz yeah. you know, he's he's got the he's got the resources of Wayland behind him. But uh, yeah, it's a great, it's a great, uh, interesting, he like I said, he gets a little bit more to work with here than some of the others too. Um, he's the one that, you know, when things go a little bit south, he's, he's ready to get into action, you know, as much as you can against aliens and predators. But yeah, good stuff. Well, Andrew, I would say at this point, as we go through the casting, I, th- I think beyond that, the rest of this crew kind of falls into that fodder category. They're bodies that are there to be host to the aliens or deaths to uh, various aliens in the movie. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna I'm gonna pick one of these performances to to shout out because they they kind of stood out to me. I'm gonna go with Agatha de la Boulay as Adele Rousseau. I think I'm pronouncing all those names right. Again, kudos for the international cast. But she was memorable to me. She's there again as fodder. 
limited number of lines, one of the first to die become host to the aliens. But she she has this moment before she goes on this expedition where, again, they're, they're exploring what they think is a empty, desolate, ancient pyramid in Antarctica. There's, there's no reason to think there's a threat, but she brings a handgun with her, and Lex kind of calls her out on it. And she says, it's the same principle as a condom. I'd rather have one and not need it than need it and not have it. And that's that's just sound advice. Not, not that I recommend having a handgun on you at all times, but right, sound right. advice uh, regardless. And that gun plays a role throughout the rest of this movie as other characters use it. And again, she kind of just becomes fodder after that. But uh, memorable line, memorable look. I, Andrew, I like whenever supporting characters that ultimately aren't going to factor in too much have a distinct look. It really it makes them pop. It, she reminds me of like Switch from the first Matrix movie. You know, not mm-hmm. integral to the plot by any means, but looks cool as heck and you remember them. And she's got a cool lines. Um, I mean, on one hand, she kind of literally looks like Switch. They have like the same hair, but <laughs> still minor characters that have a distinct look, even if, you know, they don't factor in much in the plot. I just I think it's a cool move in movies. I agree. I think she does get a cool look and it helps, like you said, when you're not able to give the characters kind of some story layers, you can give them unique visual flair, if you will. And I think that's a a good alternate thing to do. Uh, yeah, like you said, most of this cast, though, we're getting into the, the fodder. Um, there's two I want to point out real quick, though. Uh, Tommy Flanagan, an alum from Sons of Anarchy, plays a character named Mark Verheiden, who is a member of the armed escort, but he is named after a noted comics writer, Mark Verheiden, who wrote several Alien and Predator comics for Dark Horse. Uh, so fun. I thought that was a fun little nod. And then uh, Karsten Norgard plays uh, Rustin Quinn, who's the head of the drilling team, who has the brief moment I mentioned earlier where you think the cold might play a factor in yeah. the Predators not being able to see these guys. Um, but it's interesting for me because I remember him as the evil coach from Iceland, of all places, in Mighty Ducks 2. Is <laughs> there random because you know we can't we can't have russia be the bad guys in mighty ducks too so it's iceland for some random reason and he plays their coach and he is a jerk but uh yeah uh otherwise like i said we're looking at a lot of uh a lot of uh just bit parts here i do want to shout out tom woodruff jr plays the one of the aliens here again marking i think his third uh, time playing an alien after Alien Three and Alien Resurrection, so he's say he's an old hand at this at that point. Yeah, and of course we got to shout out Ian White, who plays the Predators, most notably our main Predator, who is named Scar in the end credits. Also plays an engineer in Prometheus. So again, he's already part of the Alien franchise with this, but it's cool that he gets to play a Predator and a alien franchise specific character in prometheus so that guy's you know his line at the at the comic convention's got to be getting long uh the dude is seven foot one man look at pictures of this guy it's wild that is nuts um he also does play one of the predators in the sequel to this film alien versus predator um aliens versus predator andrew my mistake aliens versus predator requiem My mistake. Um, also had a bunch of uh, bit parts on Game of Thrones as well as a variety of different characters. When you're seven one, I guess uh, you come in quite handy when people need somebody to pull something off. But um, yeah, it'll yeah. be class. Well, Andrew, 
I think it's time we jump into the scenes of this movie, specifically the best scenes, in your opinion. When is this movie firing on all cylinders? What is your favorite scene in Alien vs. Predator? I'm going to go with our, our kind of finale climax, where, uh, where our lead character Lex kind of finally gets to get in on the action. Um, we get, um, so throughout the film, obviously, you know, the one of the interesting things that's established, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but the, the pyramid they're in reconfigures itself at multiple times. Uh, so this leads to the group getting separated in a variety of ways. Um, but ultimately, we end up with most of our team is taken out. We're down to basically just Sana as Lex and our main predator, Scar, at this point. Um, and after a situation where they kind of team up to dispatch some some of the aliens, uh, there's this mutual respect that forms. And I think this is a cool moment. Um where you kind of do add some ripples to the predator characters by kind of acknowledging that I can't do this alone. You've established yourself as being, you know, capable. And so we're going to form a, a, you know, a tenuous truce as it is to, uh, finish the problem. And so he fashions her some weapons out of, uh, alien body parts, which is pretty rad. So I can't, cool. <laughs> yeah. I can't pretend that's not awesome. Um, and that leads to them kind of going into the final stretch here where ultimately they end up fighting the alien queen. And uh, it's all awesome. It's it's really cool. Um, I do like this pyramid, the idea that it is consistently changing. Um, I guess I can talk about it. The idea of this pyramid, though, is that this is essentially a rite of passage for predators. Essentially, the predators have captured an alien queen. Um, and every hundred years, they unthaw it have some people sacrifice themselves and it becomes a rite of passage for whoever predators are there to defeat all the aliens or if they fail to do so basically sacrifice themselves to wipe the situation out um and this has been going on for seemingly thousands of years uh one of the interesting ripples is the pyramid that they are fighting in has aspects of like three different ancient cultures which means it predates all of them which is a cool thing that is included i like that just adds to the history of it and just how long they've been doing this but yeah, this finale where you've got Lex and Scar versus the Alien Queen, I was like, this is awesome. Can't go wrong here. Yeah, it's very cool. I like the first thing that stands out to me is they're on the surface again for most of this fight because the Alien Queen breaks through the ice to, to attack them. It's super cool to see the Alien Queen this mobile. Most of the time we see the Alien Queen, they're kind of stationary and just pumping out eggs. So it's cool to see it this vicious and on the attack. I love how giant it is, and I like in particular that it's a mix of CG and practical. Anytime you've got like the full body of the alien in frame and it's moving around quickly, it's usually CG because it kind of has to be. But they don't abandon the appeal of having a practical alien because when it's close-ups or their mouth or they're about to you know, try to t- take a bite or stab one of our heroes – it's uh, it's back to practical. So they kind of use what is best for that shot, which is, I think, the way to use CG or just effects in general. Use what's best for the specific shot, not rely too heavily on one or the other because you can come up short uh, in one way. So I really appreciated that. And uh, yeah, I, I like the fight a lot. I like uh, I like how it ends, like the Predator showing up and them seeing the scar that has been placed on her cheek to mark her as a warrior. And they recognize that she is 
you know, she's okay in their book. Uh, I like it. It, it. it kind of takes what was established in Predator 2, where they have this, like, respect for other warriors, and it takes it to the next level. Like, not only does she gain the respect, but she's worthy of fighting alongside them. The Predator's no yeah. longer trying to kill her, and that's just, that's a cool new ripple. One thing this movie, I think, does well is advance the lore of both franchises. And if it's not advancing it, it's at least acknowledging all the stuff we know about these characters before that, from, of course, the life cycles of the alien and the the hierarchy of the of the predator society. I think it's I think it's great. It's obviously made, you know, Paul W. Sanderson obviously was a student of both of those franchises. There's nothing in here that's like, quote, sacrilegious to diehard fans of either franchise, I think, which is uh, a true testament. Because a lot of times we see these types of films, these merging of franchises, and something's coming up short somewhere. I just, I don't think that happens here. No, there was some criticism, uh, and I feel like I, even I thought this when I first uh, kind of reevaluated this and was like, there was this idea that the movie implies the Predators created the aliens to be the ultimate prey for themselves. But it never really says that. Um, all it really implies is that they've got one and they're yeah, using yeah. it for this purpose. It's never, it's never really shown that the Predators you know, engineered the aliens in a lab. Um, don't worry. Ma- Michael Fassbender gets to do that later on. Um, but uh, yeah, and that is, cause that for me was a weird hang up I had with this. So I was like, well, I was kind of hated that it did that. And I remember rewatching it a bit, you know, before now, but a while ago I was like, Oh, it never really does that. It never actually kind of says, Oh, the predators created the aliens. It's just that they've got this queen and they know what it can do. And they know what these things are. Um, so in that regard, like you said, it is acknowledging both franchises. I don't think it's stepping on any franchise. Um, and uh, I do like the uh, the ripple of giving uh, Lex the kind of scar. Uh, that happens uh, to a character named Machiko Noguchi in the Alien vs. Predator comics. Uh, she is a character that fights, ends up fighting alongside the Predators against the aliens and also gets a mark. So that's some of the comic lore also working its way into this film, which I think is cool. Um, and yeah, like I said, good stuff, top to bottom. If you were in Lex's position and a Predator, you, know, you just fought alongside a Predator, and they were like, all right, we won the battle. Let me scar your face. Would you let him do it? Um, I don't know, Chris. I've never been in that situation, and I can't <laughs> imagine being in that situation. I feel like part of me would just be like, do whatever you're going to do, man. Just don't rip my head off. <laughs> yeah. What if, like, because, uh, you know, we know that alien blood is acid and it eats through, like, holes of ships. Like, it's very powerful. Yeah. And the Predator uses some of it to create the scar on his forehead. But what if, like, Predator skin was, like, super tough and it could withstand it, but human skin wasn't? And he goes to do the scar on her and it just melts through her entire, like, head and kills her? <laughs> like, Chris, like, Chris, oh. Chris, Chris, you're watching the movie wrong. Um. <laughs> I say, what if? You know, what if? You'd probably feel bad. That Thanks predator is just like, oops. Um, <laughs> noted for the future. Um. <laughs> the uh, the alien queen is taken out whenever they spear her side, and she's attached to essentially the a giant what becomes a giant anchor that falls into the Arctic waters, and the alien seemingly drowns. We see it falling into the abyss. 
don't technically see it die. Maybe it freezes somewhere down there. Use it in the future. I don't know. But cool way to dispatch of the queen alien. But you know what I, I thought, Andrew? We're in Antarctica. The surface is like frozen. There's snow everywhere. The water has to be incredibly cold. In my understanding of body of water, when you get deeper in the water, it gets colder, right? Usually. Uh, so so wouldn't like just a few feet below the surface? Why is it not all ice? You're in Antarctica, the coldest place like on Earth. You would think if the surface is frozen, you're not going very deep in the water before it's just ice. Is there just a giant layer of ice down there? No, there's not. I mean, there is an ice shelf. Don't get me wrong. What's keeping um, it from freezing? The temperature. Why does why does <laughs> why does ice why does water freeze at the top? Like you go like uh what's it ice fishing? You cut a hole in the surface and there's water below. Why is the top frozen but not the water? If it gets colder, as you go deeper, because the surface air is what's cold. So what is like the earth that's warming it up? Yes, because if you remember, Chris, the core of the earth was warm. I do know that, but just a few seconds ago, you agreed to me that water gets colder as you go deeper. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what is science? <laughs> How does this work? Well, I think, well, another issue as you get deeper with water is there's more pressure. Um, so obviously, you know, you know, it's just occurred to me, this alien queen gets thrown to the bottom of the ocean. What if she's not dead and we've just now got weird, like, fish hybrid aliens that are all swimming around down there waiting to come back? Ooh, like underwater eggs. Just like lays eggs down there and starts taking over sharks and... Sharks and whales and shit. So I'm assuming this doesn't happen Maybe... in Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. No. Um, <laughs> That's the sequel Predator Requiem goes off the, uh, goes off the tease at the end of this film. But, um... Yeah, maybe that's what H.P. Lovecraft saw. <laughs> it's just <laughs> alien hybrids. <laughs> All right, let's uh let's move on to move my on. favorite scene in the movie. Um my favorite scene, what I'm going to highlight is when you know we've both agreed that this movie delivers on the promise made by that title and I love the first fight between the predators and the aliens. Uh I think it's awesome. So for a while we just see predators taking out humans and that's all cool i love these predator weapons i love i think it's the first time we've seen this there's beefy an, predators um, an invisible <laughs> noose and when the humans walks into it and then it yanks them up by an invisible noose and his gun falls i thought that was super cool we see yep. my favorite predator weapon which is the net that that wraps around somebody and then tightens to the point that it Cuts them into cubes, <laughs> and the uh, I think it's the first time we've seen like the mechanism that uh, makes the net tighten, which I thought was pretty cool. The way it like spins the rope in makes mm-hmm. the net really tight. And you know what's interesting about that, Andrew, is the person that it is squeezing into seemingly cubes. We, we don't see the final effect because this is PG thirteen. Is Colin Salmon as his character Maxwell Stafford, who, like we said, was in Resident Evil. And how does he die in that movie, Andrew? He gets cut into cubes by a laser and it falls into pieces. This is like the same death. I thought that was Paul pretty Paul W. Fun. Sanderson just uh, doesn't like this guy, apparently. One's going to die a very gonna specific die way. horrible deaths. Um, I think about that scene from Resident Evil a lot. And I think that's a very influential scene for cinema of the early 2000s. As far as I remember, I think I've asked this on the show before. I think that's the first time we saw a character get cut up, then there's a pause, 
and then they fall into pieces. And we have mm-hmm. seen that so many times since then, especially in the early 2000s. We saw it there. Uh, Final Destination 2 does it. Equilibrium does it. We have Alien vs. Predator here doing it. It's still happening to this day. Someone gets... Doesn't Kill Bill do that? Someone gets sliced and there's a pause and they separate? Isn't that during know. the Lucy Liu Uma Thurman fight? Isn't that how that ends? Her scalp gets cut off? Like when she, yeah, there... she slices her... I think there's a pause. Okay. Well, there you go. It's another example. You're the expert. You're the expert. I'm asking you. I I don't recall. I got to watch Kill Bill again, I guess. But it makes sense in Resident Evil. At least it makes sense as much as it can make sense because you're getting cut by lasers, which are like as thin as it can possibly be, right? So like you get this Mm -hmm. tiny, tiny cut and then like it takes a minute for the the gooeyness of the human body to separate. But in all the other examples, I mean, Final Destination 2 does it literally with barbed wire going through a person's body. Then there's a pause. Whenever you're getting cut with like steel or blades or knife, things that have like a definable dimension, you are separating those body parts. It's not going to hold together. And it kind of drives me nuts, Andrew. I've got to say, but That's it fair. doesn't happen here. So I'm allowed to say it here because I'm not complaining about the movie that we're covering. But I've just got to say Resident Evil kind of started this thing like that, that got out of hand. Actually, you know what? They do That's do another it here. one. They do do it here because there's the net. And then uh, later, whenever a predator is fighting an alien, it cuts the alien. And then there's a pause. And then the alien's head falls into two pieces. So they do do it here. Well, it, but that's Damn at least it. an alien. Maybe their biology is different. <laughs> okay, sure, Angie. Thanks for saving the movie. Uh, uh, that's my rant. If you can think of a time before Resident Evil, yeah, I was is most curious about and slowly falls apart. I, I really want to know. I think Resident. I feel Evil like the first, that but... has to have happened in like some samurai movie before two thousand. I feel like that's something that has to have happened. But we'll find out, won't we, Chris? Do they do it in Predators? Because there's that. I don't remember that like Sam. That's one I got to rewatch predators. Yeah. Rules, so I need to rewatch that. Um, uh, but that's, that's my tangent. My favorite scene though, <laughs> to continue, <laughs> uh, the, the predators are taking out the humans and then an alien tail whips down and stabs through the predator so cool. and lifts it up. And they come face to face with that iconic shot. Perfect, perfect introduction to the two of them fighting. And then we get an extended fight scene between an alien and a predator. At one point, the predator, like, swings the alien around by its tail and throws him. The alien's tail gets cut in half, so it's spewing acid everywhere. It gets on the predator's armor. He's got to take it off to continue the fight. Like, awesome. It's it's totally delivering. And we've talked already about this movie being PG-13. There's a lot of gore that can't be shown. When, when humans are getting killed, we cut away or hide it a lot. But... With aliens and predators, the board is much more lenient. And we can see them getting body parts cut off and stabbing each other. And that's that's where you want the focus in a movie like this. We, we want the big action scene. Do you want it focused on the two of them fighting each other? And they don't pull any punches. I think it's an awesome fight scene. There's a few conflicts between the two species throughout the movie. But this first one that we see, I'm like, hell yeah. This is what I signed up for. This is what I metaphorically bought a ticket for when I wanted to see this movie. I think it delivers 100%. I agree. And that's kind of, you know, I've, I've been saying it this whole episode. I think this movie knows what it's trying to do, and it succeeds at doing that. Um, and like I said, this this reveal scene is very cool, because at this point, the aliens have been mostly kept off screen like we've been seeing the pieces like we see the alien queen we see the eggs getting laid we see the face huggers we see the chest bursters but the fully formed aliens have been kind of kept back 
Um, and that was a deliberate choice to kind of echo the early Alien film as well, to kind of keep that alien hidden. Um, kind of have to show the Predators to a degree, um, just be to, to kind of incorporate them into the plot. But this big reveal, this big first face-off works really well, and it's very cool. Um, and yeah, it's you get a big extended fight. You get to kind of see what they do when they're against each other. And yeah, it's like you said, it's what you came here to see. Yeah. Yeah, you do see more Predators first, and I this is the first time you see Predators arriving on Earth. So you get, like, some new stuff. You get a shot of them on their spaceship orbiting the planet. You get their ship that drops them off, the little capsules that get dropped down in. Like, again, expanding the lore of the franchise in a respectable way, in a way that fits in with everything that's come before it. Like, I, I think the movie, it's got a lot of stuff. It does a lot of stuff right in... Uh, as a fan of both franchises, I appreciate all the ways that it expands on it. Or in the case of Alien, I would say Alien, it does less of like expanding on it and more of just being true to its source material. But you right. still get a lot of stuff that you haven't seen much before. I think these are the best looking face huggers we've seen up until this point. Oh, yeah. Uh, the eggs have that slow mo cool. scene. Yes, the first time all three of them jump out at once and it slows down. You see them all crisscrossing as they reach their target. I thought that was so cool. I love the shots. Uh, You can see inside the egg and you see the face hugger like unravel. And then its fingers come out the top. Looks, man, it looks awesome. You got one of my notes. I'll just read you like my note word for word. But I was watching this movie and uh, just my, uh, my... (laughs) My son, who's about to turn two, I uh, was using my phone to watch um, some YouTube videos, some YouTube kids videos while he watched some of this movie because I didn't really want him watching this movie. And so to take notes, <laughs> I was using my wife's iPad. And there's a reason I'm setting all this up. It's because I'm using my wife's iPad to take notes. And then later, I just had her like send me the notes to my phone so I could have them for this podcast, right? So she's got a lot of my notes on her iPad. And when she's sending them over, she reads <laughs> one of my notes, which... I read for you right now. It says, "Real clear shots of face hugger genitalia." <laughs> <laughs> because the, oh, the Alien man. franchise and the design, it's notable for incorporating genitalia into its design, both male and female. It's the themes of the movie. We don't need to dive into all that, but a face hugger, right. specifically, the part that goes on your face. It's clearly modeled after both male and female genitalia. And there's a lot of shots of that face are coming directly at the screen and protruding. And like they, again, just being true to source material and what came before it. They, they, they designed all that stuff and we get very clear shots of it. So if you're an alien fan, I mean, that's just delivering in that regard. And yeah, those face, the face huggers rule. They kind of, I feel like after the, I feel like as the alien franchise goes on, they, that, that part, kind of get sidelined we focus more on the yeah. fully xenomorph so it was cool to see the facehugger return as a threat and i love you know i mentioned when we're going through the cast that i really like ewan brimmer's death scene and he is being held up against the wall cocooned in alien goo which like we said previously andrew we don't know where that goo is secreted from but we know that aliens Stick people to the wall. We know that they they know we know they terraform these places when they go to them. 
<laughs> and there's this dramatic scene of a egg hatching and a facehugger coming out. And he's stuck to the wall and he's reaching and reaching and trying to grab a handgun. And he finally gets his hand on it. The facehugger leaps through the air and just in time, he's able to shoot it and save himself. And then the camera pulls back and there's just dozens of eggs in this room. And they all start hatching. And his fate is sealed at that point. But I, I love that scene so much because it gets us so involved and caught up in this tension of this one face hugger. And we're like relieved when he kills it. And then it kind of just shows that, like, well, nope. he's doomed. I thought that's, that scene is rad. Also, in keeping in line with the lore established before this movie, on the Predator side, whenever the Predator comes across Wayland, it scans his body, sees that he has cancer. And spares his life because that's you know the trophy hunters they're not interested in killing things that are already wounded or already on the way out uh we saw in predator 2 it spared a woman because she was pregnant and so i thought this was a cool nod to what came before it and it decided not to kill him now of course Wayland takes that as an opportunity to get a cheap shot in the predator and that seals his fate <laughs> but he gets that hero death but still it's cool just again like i've been saying it's all in line with the lore that came before it. So this does add Lance Henriksen to the club, right? Death by Terminator, Death by Alien, Death by Predator. When did he die by an alien? Does oh, mean he oh, duh, it? duh, duh, he, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He dies by a Predator. Yeah, okay, I got you. So that's... Hmm. Does he die by an alien? That that one's questionable. He gets he ain't, he ain't walking away from that. Um, but uh, okay, all right. We'll say that counts. We'll say that counts. Um, Death by Alien, Death Predator. Yeah. So just no Terminator though, huh? Two out of three. No, he's in Terminator. He's he in get, the OG he, Terminator. Does he get killed by one? He gets. I guess you don't technically ever see his final like you know confirmation of his death but he gets blown apart by a terminator using a gun pretty hardcore so i i have no recollection of this i didn't know he was in the first yeah he plays one of the cops in the first terminator well wait what say you andrew do you say he is yeah alongside bill Bill paxton Paxton. absolutely class of two he deserves it Uh. (laughs) (laughs) um sure okay cool well look at that look at that how is he on the killing side? I guess he didn't kill any of them, huh? No. So Arnold still got the record for that. Yes. Arnold killing two out killed. of three. Yes. And if they had managed to get him into one of these movies. Hey, it ain't over. Hey, it is not over. Oh, yeah. Okay. I just, I, I just Google image it. And, uh, Lance Henderson Terminator. Yeah, he's at the... Police He's at the police station when he like when the Terminator like destroys it. Um. Yes. Okay. I gotcha. And also in the Google image, I found nerdy fact number eighteen hundred. Bill Paxton was the only actor to have played characters that were killed by an alien, a predator, and the Terminator in each respective film franchise until two thousand four's Alien vs Predator, in which Lance Henriksen also received the honor. So look at that good call, Andrew. Nerdy fact indeed. Hey. I know my Lance Henriksen, man. Uh, listeners, uh, drop this line on on someone at a bar, and if it leads to a date, uh, let us know. Give it a shot. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a good pickup line. It's a good, like, you know, hey, did you know this fact? And they'll be like, wow, you're smart. No? Wow, you watch a lot of movies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but for serious, I do really like the Lance Henriksen death scene. I like the the little ripple. You've gotten hints of this kind of before where the Predators kind of focus on specific things, but this is really kind of your first instance of it kind of specifically not killing a human because it can tell that it's like dying. And he's like, there's no, there's no prize in this. There's no, um, honor. Not that there's necessarily honor in killing somebody who's never been trained to fight their whole life either, but you know, it's, you know, (laughs) but, uh, um, well, to be fair, the predators typically only kill those that are kind of aggressive. I'm trying to think of some of the more specific people here. And I think they all get offed by aliens instead of the predators. So, I guess there is some some knowledge, some consistency there between uh, the predator targets, but I did like this. And then obviously, once Lance Henriksen uh, tries to set it on fire, um, the predator is like, "Okay, now you made me mad," and stabs him. So, adding him to this illustrious club. Um, <laughs> the predators do kill some humans that have his weapons. He kills them to get their weapons back, like the net. That I yeah, talked about earlier. Like, that's so, yeah. that's definitely a piece of it where like they take their weapons, so they're trying to get the yeah. weapons back. That's so justified. That's yeah, you stole my stuff. That means you die. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a shot of a chest burster, uh, you know, doing his thing, bursting out of a chest, and the predator grabs it midair and then snaps its neck with its hand. You know what, Andrew? I felt a little bit bad. <laughs> you just killed a baby. <laughs> Why you gotta put it that way? Jesus Christ! <laughs> it's rough stuff. I, I I I gotta say I if it wasn't clear already I like this movie. I had a good time. Part of it maybe is because that bar was set pretty low by the reception and things I heard about it. But again, as a fan of both franchises, I think this delivers on everything you want to see. Those franchises coming together. I'm not super into ranking movies. I think I've said before, but like right. if I were to rank each franchise and include this movie in those rankings. I don't think it's at the bottom of either list. I think it goes above some of the mainline movies in each franchise, and that's really saying something. As far as the critic score, I I can I think it's a little low, but I kind of get this isn't like a critic's darling. The movies and the franchises that are more highly regarded and highly rated, they're all sci-fi movies, but they also have some extra layers to them. There are some some metaphors and symbolism and subverting expectations of the genre and they get a lot of kudos for that and this movie is all surface level it's alien versus predator what you think you're going to get exactly what you, there's not a lot beneath the surface and so I, I get why it's not super high regarded critically but as a fan that's, that's kind of all i wanted from this movie so i'm you know big thumbs up for me but you know all that being said i think We've 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 praised this movie enough that I can throw a few light criticisms out there, um, and still you know remain hashtag PP. I've got to say, notoriously PG thirteen movies can use the F word one time, and it can't be in a sexual context. That's the rule. This movie, not the best use of the one F word in my opinion. The predator puts a bomb in the nest with all the eggs, and Lex says. I hope it kills every F and one of them. And, you know, whatever. That's fine. It's, it's an F word. You used it. But just minutes later, Andrew, minutes after that, an alien 
stabs our predator. It's about to kill him. And it's up to Lex to save the predator. And she looks the alien in the face and says, you are one ugly mother. And then it cuts away because they've already used the one F word. Andrew, that's where the F word should have been. That's what they should have used it, it on. Using their predator line face to face with an alien was perfect. And they have to cut it short because they can only do one F word. So, well, we'll know. have to watch the extended cut and see if they see if they do both there. Yeah, um, that'd be cool. But I, uh, we'll I, see. we've talked, you know, about like fan service lines, bringing lines back, right, using right. them again. I thought that was a pretty cool use of the of the line. I agree. I think that's a very cool use of the line to kind of flip it on the because you know, aliens are pretty damn ugly. Uh, they, <laughs> yes, they are, Andrew. One of the ripples I do like that they add with the aliens here is the idea of one of them kind of inadvertently getting branded and kind of becoming kind of the main figurehead yeah. um, of the aliens. There's one of the aliens that gets kind of caught in that net and it kind of cuts into his skull just a little bit before he breaks free, but it ends up creating this kind of grid pattern right on his, his you know, beautiful ebony alien Dome. skull. And um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> but uh, I just like that, that aspect of calling it grid because at that point scar versus grid is like a, it's a person it's personal at that point you know yeah. like it's it's genuine adding genuinely adding some ripples to that that conflict because now grid as he's called in the credits is like well you messed up my face and scar is like well you messed up my face so now they're you know just a whole vain fight where they're just really <laughs> upset about you know their their gorgeous looks being impacted but i just liked that idea of you've got tons of aliens around we're taking that time to kind of identify that here's this one that's kind of our primary guy, at least until obviously the alien queen breaks free. Um, also, how the alien queen breaks free is pretty nuts. Yeah, they slice them open to use their blood to break the chains. I mean, that's that's cool. Yeah, I agree. I I I would be remiss not to bring this up since I'm bringing you know I'm talking about light criticisms of the movie I mentioned I watched uh, a chunk of this movie with mutual friend Doug back in the day and there's there's a couple of lines in this movie that have really stood the test of time in our friendship and we reference them pretty regularly because they gave us a a good laugh so one of them is on their way out to Antarctica on this expedition Lex and Sebastian are in a convoy together. And they look at the moon. It's a full moon in the sky. And Sebastian says, you know what they call a moon that big in Italy? La Luna del Casciorte. Probably not saying that right. But Lex says, what does that mean? And he says, Hunter's moon. Then there's a pause. Then they both start laughing, like, hysterically. Like, that's just the funnest, the funniest joke. <laughs> and I, I don't, it makes no sense. I mean, there's a time in this movie where that joke would have made sense. If like halfway through the movie, they see the moon through like a a hole in the pyramid after they understand what's going on. There's a predator hunting the aliens and they remark on the moon being Hunter's moon. That can be like a laugh to break the tension. But at that point in the movie, before they go down there, why is Hunter's moon funny? Couldn't tell you, man. Yeah. So we referenced the the Hunter's moon a lot. And (laughs) the, the other, the other line that really gets me is uh, Waylon brings the team together and he's showing them what's been discovered by the satellite. And he has this big screen and this big three dimensional scan of the structure that he found beneath the surface. So we see what the structure looks like in the scan. And he says, my experts tell me it's a pyramid 
<laughs> Why do you need an expert to tell you what a pyramid is? There's a uh, there's a comic called Atomic Robo. It's one of my favorites. Uh, but there's a there's a bit. So Atomic Robo is your lead character, and he's a robot, obviously, and he emotes with his eyes almost completely. There's no mouth on the robot, but at one point there's an issue where somebody calls him and he answers the phone. And he's like, "Hello," and they go, "Robo, there's a pyramid in Egypt." <laughs> and he, he, the next panel is literally just him with the exact same expression on his face saying nothing and just even though there is no change you can tell that he's 100% like no shit <laughs> <laughs> Andrew we can't talk about this movie without talking about the final tease of the film Ooh. the predator succumbs to his wounds he's picked up by other predators and on board the ship in space his body's lying on a slab, and a chest burster breaks out of his chest. We get a close-up of this little baby, and it is a, what has been dubbed, a predalien. It is a baby alien, but it's got the mandibles of a predator. I think it's rad. I think it's a cool way in this movie. I would assume this is from the comics. I assume they've crossed species before this, but... I don't know where it comes from, but I I thought that was a really fun tease, a cool design, and you know has me excited to see more. It works for me. Yeah, it's definitely in the comics. Um, but yeah, the I can I can tell you that the second movie pretty much picks up immediately after this one. Um, it it picks up off of this tease pretty much immediately. So if you do want to see, because it definitely use the 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 is that is the main antagonist of. Aliens versus Predator Requiem. And uh, so if you do want to see how that plays out, I suggest giving that a watch. Maybe I will, Andrew. Maybe I'll do just that. From our Discord, we have some positive thoughts on this film. Steven wrote in and said, I truly appreciate the bodysuits and practical effects of AVP1 and think it is a very watchable popcorn film. The second one thought that the only thing missing from the first was swearing and bad CGI. But I would happily... Take another PG-13 AVP movie if it meant I have practical effects. Great point. I mean, we praised the effects of this movie already. A lot of practical, a lot of guys in suits. I haven't seen the second one. It sounds like they maybe move away from that. So thanks for the warning, There is Steven, uh, but... The scale is definitely higher. Um, this movie, I think, benefits a lot from... We're pretty much condensed to the pyramid, and there's a lot of shadows, there's a lot of tunnels, there's a lot of hiding. So you're able to play a lot with that and keep things very practical. Um, I think they even said that even the Alien Queen, like 70% of those shots are some form of practical. Pretty much like you said, the only ones where it's full body, like running type stuff, is really all where it goes to CGI. And they try to do that in such a way that, like, I re- even watching it now, I was kind of like, I don't think this looks like bad. Like no, the queen, alien, especially the final fight at the end, I was like, this looks perfectly fine, better than fine. It looks good. Um, the snow and the darkness obviously help. You can mask some of the, the harder edges. But uh, why do you think everything in Guillermo del Toro's movies takes place at night in the rain? But um, <laughs> it's it works pretty well. And yeah, I can definitely say the second one, It there's obviously still practicality to it. But it because the scale ends up being so much wider, there is a lot more. CGI. So I agree. I do really, at bare minimum, appreciate about the, that about AVP is that it really was like, and that was apparently a deliberate choice by 
uh, Paul W.S. Anderson. He said it makes it a lot more thrilling um, and wanted that wanted that for the film. And I, I very much appreciate that. Another man's thoughts that I would like to read on this episode come from James Cameron, one of the most highly regarded filmmakers of all time, and of course, the director of Aliens. And he shared some thoughts on this movie. He said, before watching this movie, there was a quote that he said, uh, to me, it's just like Frankenstein meets Werewolf, which was Universal taking their assets and starting to play with them against each other and just milking it, which... I take issue with because I think that kind of stuff is is very fun, but I I understand the point that he's trying to make there. However, in an interview after watching the movie, he said it was actually pretty good. I think of the five Alien films, I'd rate it third. I actually liked it. I liked it a lot. Thanks, James Cameron. Well, Andrew, we can put a bow on it. That is Alien and Predator Month. Five movies from the franchises. We dove into all the positives. And you know what? It was a good time. There's a few straggling movies from both franchises that I haven't watched or need to rewatch, and I'm kind of in the mood. I might do a little mini marathon to finish it up. How about you? I already watched Alien vs. Predator Requiem, Chris. Don't make me do it again. <laughs> Hashtag PP. Next month, of course, we got a new theme, and it's going to be focused on reboots. Movies that were intended to reboot a franchise, but of course, were poorly received upon release. We will be revisiting those movies and finding all the positives as we do. But for now, it's time for another question of the week. This one comes from Groffles, who asks in our Discord. Is there a movie you watched that's not a musical, and because of that film, you were introduced to a band, then subsequently became a fan of the band? For me, Wayne's World and Highlander for the band Queen, and another one, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World and the band Metric. They had the song with Scott's ex-girlfriend and a band singing it. Good question, Groffles. Interesting, so citing Wayne's World as getting into Queen, that's got to be for a lot of people. I bet there's like a generation yeah. ride that was introduced to, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody, the song, but, you know, subsequently banned after that. So that's a, that's a great answer. It's a very good answer. And I actually would use that movie to be not just Queen, but that was probably also my introduction to Alice Cooper. Um, oh, yeah. Given that he has a prominent performance of one of his later songs um and then you know actually gets to speak in the film but uh yeah so i, was I would not aware of that agree. <laughs> is this guy not a party or what um <laughs> but uh yeah so i would say wayne's world not just for queen but also definitely for alice cooper um wayne's world would also been my introduction to the song ballroom blitz which uh, obviously in the movie is performed by crucial taunt but uh is originally performed by a band called the Sweet. Uh, who have a couple of songs that you might have heard of. Um, the other big one they had was, I think, in the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 trailer. It was Fox on the Run. But, uh, yeah, that movie definitely, through several steps, got me over to uh, the Sweets catalog. I, on on cassette, I had the Armageddon soundtrack which I, of course, got 
because of the Aerosmith song. Don't want to miss a thing. And I, I mean, I guess I could credit that movie for getting me into Aerosmith. I'm sure I was aware of who they were before that. They've had a ton of hits, but like that was a modern hit by them, you know, at the time. So yeah. I probably connected that song more than older songs. And that soundtrack actually has Our Lady Peace on it, which became one of my favorite bands in middle school and high school. And that was the first time I heard Our Lady Peace song. They have Starseed on that soundtrack. And I subsequently later, of course, became a very big fan of that one. I kind of feel like the art of movie soundtracks is, has really died out. A lot yeah. of times, uh, you know, these days you get like the score released as vinyl, which is all, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of collecting songs from and inspired by the movie, songs made exclusively for soundtracks, like that just doesn't really happen anymore. And it's kind of a bummer because it's like a very, a very legit, cool, popular way to get into artists. And, you know, that's, it's, you know, the music industry itself has changed tremendously in the past few decades, right. but that's kind of been a, you know, a byproduct of it is, is that style of soundtrack going away. Yeah. You get a few, like James Gunn really is kind of more the exception than the rule where you've got a guy who like crafts the soundtrack to be a part of the movie. Like the soundtrack is its own kind of character in a lot of ways. Well, um, I mean, Tarantino yeah. does that too, but those yeah. are, those are calling from like past hits versus right. like songs no... being created for the movie. Yeah, I agree with that. There's um I actually back to the original point briefly. I think my introduction to Primus is actually Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. That's and a that became a lifelong thing cuz they briefly appear as the band that plays before Wild Stallions in the Battle of the Bands in that movie and they're like the end of uh Tommy the Cat and I just remember hearing that on the soundtrack which I had um, because I had the first two Bill and Ted soundtracks, which have some jams on them. But uh, yeah, uh, one that I can think of that I really liked was actually the soundtrack to Secret Life of Walter Mitty, um, which is a movie that I've mentioned in the past is um, a personally uh, profound movie for me. Um, but the music for that film was done by Jose Gonzalez and uh, Theodore Shapiro. Shapiro? Um, whichever, but it is a really great selection of songs by bands, but then there are also songs that, um, Jose Gonzalez and Theodore Shapiro put together specifically for the film. Um, and they play like over the credits, they play during the film. And I think that is, like you said, it's a cool it's a cool thing to have in that situation. And I actually really like that soundtrack a lot. It also has of monsters and men on it. And that definitely was my introduction to them. And it also has Junip on it, which was my introduction to them too. Um, so that was a really good soundtrack. I liked. And then of course, nobody saw that movie, so it doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that idea of like, you know, the idea of like, you know, the days of all star by smash mouth debuting on the mystery men soundtrack. Right. Is, yeah. Is gone. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Shrekies. It's it's a mystery men song. It's not a Shrek song. It's <laughs> or it's, uh, you don't get that one. Um, Evanescence on Daredevil. You know that was Daredevil. Yeah, dude, that, that song that debuted there. I remember hearing that as a theme song for a wrestling pay per view. Like that was another thing that I miss a little bit in wrestling was this idea of like new hit songs being the theme songs for pay per views. Um, 
remember hearing a lot of uh, strange songs that I probably otherwise wouldn't have heard uh, through that. I remember that. Uh, can't can't uh, speak for the band these days, given their recent antics, but I remember Headstrong by Trapped. Um, you know, Trapped for all seven of you that remember that band. Um, that was, uh, I think that was Bad Blood 2003, which was in Houston, so that was why it was in my head. But yeah, it just feels like that, that it created this odd sense of, I don't know if identity is the word, but there was this like link, this just kind of, yeah, this kind of sense of connectivity between pop culture, I guess, where, you know, hit songs were weaving their ways into films, into shows, into everything. And everything feels a lot more uh, siloed these days. And it's a bummer, folks. It is. Why aren't things now like they used to be when I was younger? Uh, (laughs) Why has the world moved beyond me? (laughs) It's funny thinking of of bands popping up in movies. Um, Daddy Daycare. Everyone remembers that movie, right? Cheap Trick shows up in that movie, performing at this little like carnival festival thing in the movie randomly and at the time when i saw daddy daycare i was already a huge cheap trick fan they're one of my all-time favorite bands but so i got to do like the leo point moment but i'm i'm curious if anybody was like introduced to cheap trick watching daddy daycare in the early 2000s like if like a, a young impressionable person would see a band who had their heyday in the 70s and 80s and like become a fan because they're performing in a movie i don't know it's 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 a weird one when when that happens. Here's a weird here's a weird journey for you. Um, so growing up, you're aware of who the Eagles are as a band because you've heard, um, you know, you've heard Hotel California, you've heard whatever. Um, but so I, I did not put together who the people in the Eagles were for a long time, and that's true. I think for lots of bands, like you're aware of a band, but like if you asked me to name who, you know, the bass player of Grand Funk Railroad was. I couldn't tell you, um, yeah. but <laughs> but uh, what ended up happening is uh, on the Drew Carey show, which also had a, you know, whatever aside, had some really good uses of music throughout its run. I actually liked that about it a lot. Um, Joe Walsh, the guitar player and member of the Eagles, randomly like shows up as like a, a side character on that show for an extended amount of time, just acting and like he plays guitar as this character there. But like he just starts appearing on the show as a character and i was like huh and my dad was like that's joe walsh and i was like who's that he's like oh he plays guitar and i was like oh cool but through that show i ended up finding about his band the james gang because they actually have the james gang appear on a certain show and then like diving into his thing it like just i'm like reading through his wiki or something and suddenly it's like also a member of the eagles since 1975 and i was like wait what (laughs) it's like (laughs) You're like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Those Eagles? Like, he's the guy on Hotel California? And they're like, yeah. I was like, ha! That's wild. So yeah, that was wild, Chris. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah, it would be like <laughs> watching Panic Room and being and seeing like Dwight Yoakam. Uh, that's yeah. an interesting actor. It's like, oh, he has all these hits that I know, I guess. Like Chris Christopherson in Blade, just like, just <laughs> yeah. like randomly, like. Or then, like, seeing Jeff Bridges release his albums and is a total, his plays guitar and used to tour. It's like, what? <laughs> Who? <laughs> How did this happen? It, um, Drew Carey show, in my mind, anyway. I haven't revisited it forever. It's a very good show. Very unique. Yeah. And I admit, it's not streaming anywhere. I don't see it for sale no. anywhere. It's hard to Supposedly, watch. Supposedly. I want to go back. 
supposedly the music is a big part of that. It's one of those shows uh, that the music that is so sense. expensive. It's not viable to show it because the price of licensing all the music would be so expensive. Um, and it's like any show. There's like a good run of five or six seasons and then it keeps going and it maybe it declines a little bit. But, you know, that was that thing that was on. Like I'd get home from school and like Drew Carey show reruns were on Fox or whatever. And so that was that thing that was always on in the background. So, yeah, I have a lot of I have a lot of love for that show. So I yeah, trying to temper the to... expectations. I wasn't sure what the public <laughs> reception of it is, but I'm a big fan. They used to do the April Fool shows where they would have a bunch of like intentional mistakes in the episode. Yeah. And there was a contest to like find as many mistakes as possible and send it in. You'd win. We would tape that like on VHS and we would watch it over and over again. It was like, oh, that clock in the background doesn't have any hands on <laughs> Back it. Back into the left. And, <laughs> Back into the left. <laughs> yeah. And that was, I honestly, Andrew, I bet we never mailed a single letter in with all of our answers, <laughs> but we loved watching it over and over again and trying yeah, to find all the differences. That's a cool that's thing, a, man. Yeah. So cool. Ah, uh, remember being young. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, let's... I think we've I think we've covered that one. Let's move. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's move on. If you want to submit a question for a future episode, please do hop into our Discord. There's a link in the show notes. If you're not there already, head over to the Question of the Week channel. You can drop your question there. We'll read it on a future episode. And remember, maybe not every movie is great, but all movies have greatness. Thank you to Mark Benavides for singing our theme song. Follow him on Instagram at NotThatMarkAnthony. Thanks to Mitch for the music. Check him out on Twitter at I'm a Biggie Boy and check our show notes for a SoundCloud link. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. It's the only way we're going to grow. And follow us on social media at BOTRCast. Thank you. All right, let's uh let's start with the cast though, as we always do, and we're and specifically we're gonna high point. Oh boy, high point, highlight. Ooh, how high are you, Chris? Oh. <laughs> no, officer, it's high. How are you? <laughs> as you're taking a drink, perfect. Yeah, fantastic. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, woo. <laughs> Let's jump into it, starting with the cast, like we always do. First things first, we're gonna highlight. We're gonna highlight. Why am I having a hard time with this? I do this all the time. <laughs> do not know. Um. Well, let's jump into it, Andrew. Starting with the cast and <laughs> Jesus Christ, come on, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Hey, I sound like South Park making fun of John Travolta when I say that. <laughs> Oh my god, Sandy! <laughs> Sandy, oh my god, Jesus Christ! Uh, Come out of the closet, Tom. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Obviously, he's the one that, when things go a bit south, is ready for it. Um, he or so he thinks. You know, you're never really ready for aliens and predators, but um, you, uh, he's all ready to. Just, he's gung ho. Yeah, oh, hold on. That just <laughs> spiraled together and was terrible. Um. <laughs> 
he's the one that you know when things go a little bit south he's he's ready to get into action you know as much as you can against aliens and predators but yeah good stuff are you you full andrew that that word salad you just ate jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> No, I get it. It happens to the best. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 